0: This is The Premise, and I'm your host, Jennifer... Chad Thompson. No, wait, Chad
1: Thompson's no, the host.
0: I'm the host. <laughs> I'm Jennifer Thompson.
1: And I'm Chad Thompson, the host.
0: <laughs> Today on The Premise, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Nan Wise, a licensed psychotherapist, cognitive neuroscientist, certified sex therapist, board-certified clinical hypnotherapist, and certified relationship specialist with three decades of experience. She writes a column for Glamour Magazine and frequently contributes to Psychology Today and many others. She is the author of Why Good Sex Matters, Understanding the Neuroscience of Pleasure for a Smarter, Happier, and More Fulfilled purpose-filled life. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. I find it fascinating, and I think it's really important too. In fact, you know, your book really really isn't just about sex, is it? No, my book
2: is about how sex provides a window into looking mm. at our relationship with pleasure. And beyond that, understanding how balanced or imbalanced our core emotional systems are. And what the book addresses is how the difficulty having pleasure has become a plague and is mm. impacting, yeah, yeah. it's actually a cause of stress, and also a function of stress, and underlies things like anxiety and depression. And by the way, I was doing some research for what I just published for Female First, a UK magazine. And when I did research Mm -hmm. uh, for them, I came across a new statistic that worldwide now, depression is the number one cause of disability and, Mm. um, illness. So the fact that we're so depressed is linked to inability to experience pleasure. And that actually makes you quite susceptible to depression and anxiety and it feeds upon itself and makes it all worse
0: yeah yeah it's fascinating to me how the brain works I've been really interested in neuroscience in general for several years now and I hadn't even really thought about how the brain reacts to orgasms and how sex affects us affects our moods and you talk a lot about depression and self-acceptance and chronic pain Mm so I yeah, talk a little bit more about like what's happening in the brain. Do you think that that an orgasm can help us be, be able to combat depression and, and overcome chronic pain? Like that's fascinating. Well,
2: if we backtrack for a second and we think about how the brain is wired, it's actually the brain body because mm-hmm. the core emotions, although there are circuits in the brain for these, sort of like fear-based defensive emotions as well as the affiliative and fun kinds of things like care and play and lust. Um, Essentially, the brain is wired so that both pain and pleasure give us important information as to what to approach and what to avoid. So... I think a key concept in all of this is to think about healthy pleasures or what I call healthy hedonism as pleasures Mm -hmm. that feel good and are good for us. And there really isn't a bigger brain pleasure event than sexual stimulation leading up to and culminating in orgasm. So if you want to study how pleasure is registered, In the brain, orgasm, sexual stimulation leading up to and including orgasm is like the best way to do it. And because of our hangups about sexuality, up until recently, Mm -hmm. very little has been studied about, for example, the neural correlates of sexual stimulation and orgasm, what actually happens in the brain. We know way Mm -hmm. more about pain systems than we do about the pleasure systems. And they overlap. So it's by, for me, like kind of how I got into this business is I realized that sex is a very big part of a life well lived and Mm -hmm. our ability to enjoy sex is a good sort of metric for how comfortable we are with our bodies, how much our emotional systems are keyed towards Uh, functioning well so the brain needs pleasure signals just as much as it needs the feedback that we get from pain as to what to avoid in order for the brain emotion emotional systems to be healthy and to operate
0: properly right wow you know, you talk a lot about self-acceptance, and I'm interested in how your work relates to shame and our relationship with sex and pleasure. Well,
2: even before I became a sex neuroscientist, and even before that, before I became a sex therapist, I noticed that one of the big issues for people, period, was shame. They were ashamed mm-hmm. of how they felt. They were ashamed of you know, pretty much everything across the board. And that was contributing a lot to anxiety and depression. And I found that discussing sexuality was really, really important with my clients to be able to get a window on how they felt about themselves, how they felt about their bodies, being in their bodies, how entitled they felt to pleasure in general and sexual pleasure specifically. And for me, you know, if you looked at that as a very important part of life, it was almost a natural progression for me to kind of go deeper into trying to get um, more training as a sex therapist. And then when I did that, I realized how much was missing, how many gaps in the literature there was in in terms of the neuroscience of pleasure, neuroscience of sex, neuroscience of emotions. So that really got me back to graduate school at the tender age of 50.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, so you finished your clinical social work in in the 80s, in 1984, I think. And then in 2009, you went back and got your PhD in cognitive neuroscience at Rutgers Yeah, at Rutgers. That's, That's pretty incredible. And let's let's go back to the 80s, actually. I, I read somewhere that you suffered from anxiety, and I think you, you worked in a psych clinic. Is that I right? I did. I started uh, my career working in a
2: psychiatric hospital. Inpatient wow. unit. Yeah, that, that's around.
0: Throw yourself into oh, the fire yeah. there, right? And I loved it. Just dive right I in. I loved
2: it yeah. until I ended up having a big panic attack which was like maybe two months after I started, I wrote about that in my introduction, my big fat panic attack. And how circling back to shame, Jennifer, how ashamed I felt and how out of control I felt of my mind, how broken I felt. Um, So it was such a shaming experience for me. For me, it wasn't about sex that was shaming, but having this sort of wiring towards panic attacks and they run in my family. So
0: that's did you yeah. did, did you well, I just wonder, did you feel like here I am the professional and I'm having the panic attack? Like, did you feel like you weren't good enough or like you had, had done something wrong in your in this career path? Worse than that, I felt
2: like I was going to be a mental patient for life. Right after wow. that happened, I confessed this to a friend who I had just made who was a nurse on the unit. And I said, I think I'm a mental patient. I'm like, really? I think there's something really wrong with me. And this is my friend, mm-hmm. Ellen. In fact, she's my best friend. I'm going there for dinner tonight. And she she looked at me. <laughs> Shout today, out to she, Ellen. I wrote about her in the book. <laughs> and she looked at me and she goes, not nah, sorry. You're left to, with the rest of us. You've just got panic anxiety. This is like, you'll get over it. You'll learn how to deal with it. But the very beginning, I was so shattered, Jennifer, I thought that not only was I never going to be able to complete graduate studies, which I hadn't yet done, but that I was going to be like a permanent, broken human being. It was Mm.
0: devastating. That's a really important story for your readers, because I think so so many of us feel like this is only happening to me. So to understand where shame come from and, you know, to understand the importance of self-acceptance and that it is actually how we're wired in our brain, I think can be life changing for so many people.
2: I do. And I think shame itself isn't wired into the brain. I think the, the shame is the more, shall we say, nuanced, higher level interpretation. I think what's, what's wired into us is the fear of being ostracized. So anything that might result in our being cast off by our, you know, significant people or, and that I think is being ostracized, that gets us really big time in the panic grief system, which is the core emotion that's wired in to create distress when we are literally disconnected from our supports and this happens like if you see in baby chickens they have those systems too you take them away from mom and what do they do they freak because the separated mm-hmm. baby what do you call a baby a chick is a is mm-hmm. a snack for a predator so we're wired right. to panic <laughs> when there is um, threat to our connections and the higher level threats, the ones that we think about that are influenced by culture are am I not good enough? Do I am, I, is, you know, the, is, is my sex life okay? Am I okay? We kind of can make it complicated and more, shall we say, layered on with all thoughts and feelings and experiences and, and beliefs, but at the root, it's really a fear about being disconnected from supports. Mm. So shame's a big issue for many, many people.
1: So it it's kind of interesting to me because it seems like, uh, like that would have been maybe beneficial to us in our evolution. Whereas where we are now as a society, maybe it's not so beneficial. Well, yeah. The fear of being ostracized. Well, when you
2: think about it, 18 to 20% of the population could be diagnosed at some point as having an anxiety disorder. And evolution is not stupid. Those of us who worried about and sort of had concerns about maintaining our supports and maintaining our resources and making sure that we had enough food and shelter and connection, we did not necessarily get eaten as frequently by the saber-toothed tigers than the more laid-back of us. (laughs) (laughs) And there's such a thing as too much of this kind of panic uh, fear, there's, a, there's another system that's just about fear, but that's more on, more in relationship to things that happen that are threatening. Panic, grief, mm-hmm. and anxiety is more about anticipation of some sort of shaming or anticipation of some sort of disruption to our you mm-hmm. know, supports and relationships.
0: Well, and you talk a lot about how our culture is equally obsessed with and, you know, with pleasure, and yet we're also pleasure phobic. It's like this taboo thing to have good sex in and of itself. Do you think that that this is changing? Do you think it's getting better? I'm taking a deep breath because when you look at what's
2: happening in our culture, it's almost this divisiveness that we're seeing in politics is the manifestation of this you know, kind of craziness where, you know, it's okay for the president to say, you know, grab a woman by the pussy. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, we're worried about are women going to have rights over their bodies again, you know, in terms of reproductive stuff. But to circle back to this, I think you know, we were founded by the Puritans, this culture, and we're Puritanical, right. period, which is why we think you should work hard and you shouldn't get entitlements and people shouldn't get <laughs> covered for health insurance. This whole sort of Puritanical ethic, you know, is still implicitly kind of wired into us, even though we are such a melting pot as a nation. It's, it's really kind of alarming, how yeah, people get so triggered that when, they, mm-hmm. when they're triggered like that into the fear that, and the panic, there's not going to be enough or there's not going to be enough for everybody. They go into fear and they go into disconnect and they go into making decisions based on, you know, um, core defensive emotions as opposed to reasoned, well-intended community, you know, the more affiliative mm-hmm. things.
0: Yeah. In your intro, you talk about how there'd be times where you'd be walking down the hall and people would say things to you kind of in passing, maybe even in jest, but like, oh, sex (laughs) maniac," And it it seems like you had to sort of justify what you were doing a lot. And I'm just wondering like how you managed that. It must've been frustrating, first of all, but how did you manage that new reality? That's a great question because it wasn't so much a new reality
2: for me. Because I recognized hmm. that my clients had a lot of disconnects around sexuality. So at the top of their minds, they were like all sex positive and sex is good for you and all of that. And on the bottom, the more emotional kind of reactions were very um, uncomfortable around sexuality. So I was used to people being kind of having a real approach avoidance about any topic about sex.
0: Or making jokes about it. Making jokes from
2: their distress. I didn't really um, deal with that as much as a sex therapist because the circles that you move in when you train as a sex therapist, they're very sex positive. You know, the people who are studying it, the people who are teaching it, the people who are living the work are unusual in that way. And when I came back to academia, I saw. It wasn't the other graduate students, but the professors and the guy who said, hey, you sex maniac was a man who was in his, a man who I liked a lot. He was in his, I'd say, put him in his late 60s, early 70s. I was probably 50 Mm -hmm. at the time. And I took it that it was a collegial fun thing that he was saying to me. I didn't take any offense at it. Because I always give people the benefit of the doubt, like because he's friendly towards me and he was actually very supportive of the notion. Of, at first, he said I was too old to come back to the graduate program and they told him he couldn't say that because age is another wow. <laughs> Right. Um, and on an unrelated but related note, one of the funniest things that I've ever seen, and I think it's because I'm good natured and I take it, I give people the benefit of the doubt. And so when I accept something with that offense, I can it becomes an opportunity, you know, sure, to be playful yeah. and playful is good. We're too uptight <laughs> about sex, about sexual, you know, you're so worried about what you say, you know, and that, but yet people are, you know, uncomfortable with actually dealing with this issue. But what I was going to say that was hilarious when, I don't know if you've seen, well, you have seen that movie of the orgasm brain that we made, um, that's yeah. actually from my brain data, because we figured if we use my brain data, we can't get in trouble, you know? That's right. <laughs> you can do anything with your own brain data. You can say, you know, put it out there and say, for a good, you know, for a good time, call Dr. Nan. But um, <laughs> somebody on one of the sites made a comment when this right. broke, like, well, I heard it was a 54-year-old woman and then it turned me off. And I'm thinking, really? Whoa. Whoa yeah. yeah. So I kind of laughed because, you know, I just wrote something from for psychology today about how we shame old equals ugly, especially for women and, and dried up and not sexy. So, mm-hmm. you know, like maybe now, now is the time that we can combat, you know, this whole stereotype that sex is for, you know, the province of young people. But one of the funnier things I saw on the website was as the, the brain turns around, like the head turns around three hundred and sixty degrees. And somebody somebody wrote like, Oh, I did I knew a lot about orgasm, but I didn't know that the head turns like the exorcist. It was very cute. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> you, have a, you have to have a, a sense of humor <laughs> and take things That's right. Give people the benefit of the doubt.
0: So for I'd like to let our listeners know that so your dissertation when you went back to get your PhD was genital stimulation imagery orgasm in women specifically yes. and and the video you're talking about went viral in fact from my understanding it crashed the servers yes, did. so It seems like people are, I mean, are eager, you know, as much as we have this taboo, we're eager for this information. Yes.
2: We're hungry for information. I think what we're also hungry for, and we don't realize it, is kind of going beneath the surface of this, you know, the the kind of uh, the cheap thrills and getting back into the kind of approach to sexuality, or maybe not even getting back to it, but just sort of getting to the idea of sexuality is a good way to connect. And that connection Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be sexual, but we really are hungry for face to face, flesh to flesh connection. And what we're doing Mm -hmm. now in terms of, you know, uh, being so on our devices and chasing the clicks, you know, the clickbait, it's doing a real number to one of our core emotional systems which is the seeking system which is supposed to you know work with both our defenses to protect us and our affiliative systems to go out in the world and meet you know get our needs met and this system this dopamine system is getting hijacked by all of this attention stuff that we're doing and it's like it's pleasurable in the sense that we're chasing it, but it's not satisfying.
0: Right, right. Yeah, Chad and I talk about that a lot in terms of even just trying to do simple tasks. And I find myself jumping from one task to another, almost like my brain is looking for that, that quick dopamine hit. You know, I go and check this and then I look at this and I check the email and then I find myself being so completely unproductive that, you know, it's very frustrating and it's hard to calm the mind uh, and bring yourself back to that space where you're not looking for that dopamine hit.
2: And apparently, according to the American Psychological Association, they do this big Gallup poll. People are finding a tremendous amount of anxiety connecting uh, connected to their checking their devices and there mm-hmm. is this um, phenomenon where we keep the devices on and close by, which mm-hmm. is um, partial <laughs> yes, attention. But it's always on. We're always You're- kind of we're afraid of missing out, like FOMO. FOMO, we're afraid of missing out. Mm-hmm. Also, like we're we're sort of conditioning ourselves in the mid level mind, like kind of like Pavlov's dogs. When the notifications come, we got to look because there's going to be something, either something good or bad. There's going to be something important. Yeah, something good or bad.
0: So recently I was listening to music and I was working out and there was this one tone in this song that I'd never heard before that was so similar to my phone ring That every time that tone would appear, I would like physically jump because I thought it was my phone. And it was that Pavlovian response to, oh, I got to get my phone. But it was just the music. And I I found myself unable to listen to the song because it was causing this reaction. That's a good notice, Jennifer, because
2: if you see how we get conditioned. And learn this is learning. The reward system that we think of, this dopamine system, is really a reinforcement signal that is supposed to help us learn what's good for us and what's not good for us. So Mm. it's gone awry, it's gotten hijacked away from things that are actually healthy or good for us, like what I call healthy hedonism, connection with other social joy sex with a partner that you actually like, that you're going to feel better afterwards, or even, you know, this kind of these really nurturing kinds of pleasures that like good food, fresh air, exercise Mm -hmm. and movement, sunshine, all of that, those are healthy forms of hedonism that actually help our brain core emotions work better and balance better. And we're out of balance big time. And people yes, are yeah. having way
0: less sex across the world. Yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, like, I, I, I read an article recently that, you know, the younger set 20s are really not having as much sex. And, and part of it, this particular study I read has to do with the online dating. And People are trying to date up. So they go on a date and they find that they're just not attracted to this person. So we've sort of stepped away from the natural attraction that, you know, we used to have when we were in our 20s. And they're Uh, not. Those were the days. (laughs) Yeah, those were the days, right? Where you'd see someone across the room and give them the, you know, the eyebrow lift, you know, and it was like, it was very natural. But now you meet that person and it's not at all what you expected. And, you know, so there's this this thing that's happening that they're not connecting.
2: And I think this points to a very important, more fundamental way that we're out of balance. So if we look Mm -hmm. at the affiliate of emotions that are wired in care is self-explanatory. It's the, the sort of close loving feelings that's powered by opioids in our body, you know, our own manufactured um, opioids, but there's also a system called play and play is how young animals learn how to compete and how to cooperate and how so rough and tumble play as my colleague Panksept, who's the guy who mapped out these systems in the brain, the seven systems. What he said rings so true to me um, is that, kids are not having enough rough and tumble play to get learn how to be able to interact, to get socialized. You know, back in my day, if you went out after dinner, which most kids did, and you played out on the playground or wherever you were with friends and somebody was being a jerk, social pressure would push back on them and they'd have to learn to be you know, getting along better with people, there was a nice, lot yeah. of real connection. Kids don't do hmm. that anymore. And as a result, not only are we seeing increased rates of ADHD, because kids are, their their brains are hampered, we're not really supposed to just sit still like that. Kids are, you know, there's one size fits with all. Yeah. And-, and they're not yeah. learning fundamental kind of social skills that even animals need to learn to get laid.
0: (laughs) Right? Yeah, that's fascinating. Because kids today, I mean, if anything, you know, parents are afraid to let their kids go out and roam. When I was a kid, we would leave right after breakfast in the summer and not come back until that dinner bell rang, you know? And literally, we had a dinner bell. I grew up on a farm. Wow. (laughs) But, you know, I spent all of my time outside just learning and playing and being creative. And kids don't get that. And that, you know, it's kind of scary to me. It is scary. And it's also sad. And and we have
2: younger and younger people admitted to psychiatric hospitals for suicidal ideation. We have more kids. Mm -hmm. College students are... Oh my god, they're a hot mess. Because right. they're anxious, they're stressed, they're seeking all sorts mm-hmm. of treatment now. And I've noticed as a professor, mm-hmm. their attention span is kind of like a fruit flies. They they're just they they sit in lecture now and I'm not exaggerating with two devices going. So they're watching something maybe on their tablet or their computer and they've got their phone and they're texting. And then they And they're supposed to be watching you give a lecture and listen.
0: Yeah. So I challenged
2: my human sexuality class uh last semester. I said, you know, i I'm teaching about this, you know, and everything. I said, let's see if we can shut down our phones. For the whole class. It lasted one class that they just are. And it's not that they're not nice. It's not that they're not earnest. It's not that they're not lovely, you know, people who you want to help them shape their lives. They're just so. It's a condition. Conditioned. I was going to say addicted, but I don't like that word. It's overused. They're so conditioned
0: to need their devices. Do you you think it also, I mean, I know a lot of schools are cutting physical education as part of the curriculum, and I wonder if that is not having a negative effect in that way as well. You know, they're spending more time in front of computers, and like you said, sitting all day, and physical education, like we said, is the thing that gets you out and does the rough and tumble. Exactly. I wonder if this is going to have negative effects that we don't even realize. Well, it already has. The obesity rates for
2: young people are skyrocketed. Things like early uh, diabetes and heart disease and all of that, it's already happening. We are getting fatter and sicker as a result of Mm -hmm. the sedentary lifestyle. And without that rough and tumble play for kids, you know, how are we going to develop that system and learn how to continue to be playful and find social joy in and out of the bedroom as adults?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, why good sex matters is, is, is really not about sex. It's about pleasure in all forms and happiness and self confidence and all these things you talk about. And when you start talking about them, I get really excited about it. And it gives me this sense of hope. Like understanding this as a society and as a, as a culture, you know, can help us evolve in a, in a better direction. And I wonder if you're getting that kind of a response, because I know your book comes out on January 28th and this actually is going to come out in three weeks. So it'll be right after. So your book is available everywhere where books are available. And I feel like it should be required reading. Well, it is actually kind of a textbook on understanding
2: what psychology ignores, which is our embodied emotions. Because most of the time Mm -hmm. we think of emotion as a very complex kind of nuanced, uh, top-heavy thought, belief, attitude thing, as opposed to sensations in the body. So when you talk to people, they're kind of like heads on sticks. And this is what I noticed Mm -hmm. for a long time in my practice. That I, people come in and they would be telling me about their, you know, they were upset about this and angry about this and frustrated about that and unhappy, and then I would say to them something simple like, "What's going on in your body?" and they would look at me like I was crazy.
1: And the reason <laughs> like, why, what does that have yeah, to do? With the anything?
2: reason why I yeah. had to pay attention to my body is because of my own wiring, having this kind of like. Um, tendency towards the anxiety which is an embodied reaction where you have start your heart races you start feeling physically uncomfortable like you, it's hard to ignore your body when you're having a panic attack and hmm. working with my own body over the time that I was learning tools and skills as a psychotherapist it had me going to learn meditation and yoga and then I went mm. on to gestalt therapy, and gestalt therapy is probably the first form of psychotherapy that really addressed what's going on in your body, that bot, that emotions were sensational in your body. And that basically what gets in the way is we truncate our emotional expression because we get socialized. It's not okay to be sad. It's not okay to be angry. We have people who can't regulate their emotions trying to raise us, who have don't have the tools to be able to be attuned to us enough to teach us to be able to tolerate our own feelings enough to get sad enough to get over it, to get mad enough to get over it, to get happy enough to get over it. And so the approach to the registering or registering emotions as sensations in the body is key in a way to being connected with other people. Our ability to have empathy is basically conditioned, actually, well, it's kind of wired in, but it's based on our ability to kind of feel somebody else's feelings empathy in our hmm. own body. And in order to do that, one has to know that you have a body and know that you can pick up on what you're feeling in your body. And also know that you don't have to always respond or actually react to, for example, when you're being angry, it doesn't, you don't have to react into acting from the anger. You can notice it. You can feel it. You can listen to the information and then make some changes that will be helpful in addressing what might be, what you might be angry about in a way that's mm-hmm. useful.
0: Yeah. You know, you're. what I'm hearing is a lot about mindfulness. And you mentioned yoga and meditation. And I have a question for you. So I am a rock climber. And when I'm climbing, let's say I'm 300 feet up a rock cliff. It's terrifying, first of all, but it's also incredibly exhilarating. And there's this thing that happens in my brain where I completely shut out the entire world. My work life, my to-do lists, my bills, my stress completely disappears. I am so utterly focused on the task at hand. It is... Exhilarating and amazing how I feel when I get to the top of that climb. It's like I have completely cleared my brain. And I'm for the for a very small moment, I have a stillness that gives me this connection and this balance that I can't get any other way. And and I wonder if that's kind of like an orgasm. Because with an orgasm, I mean, if you're having, if you have a good partner and you're connected, you probably have that same experience where you're not thinking about anything else, just the task at hand. Is it the same thing happening in in the brain that creates that sense of complete stillness for me? I think think?
2: it's a great example of how something like rock climbing, you need to harness your attention on what you're doing for your, literally for your survival in that moment. And it's like you're focused, your mind is focused on Your sensations and on your perceptions of what you're doing. And then you can, by doing that, you are going into what you call flow, where you're losing the rest of like things like time, like other kinds Mm, of mind chatter and the circuits in the brain. That kind of there's these networks of connectivity during different brain, you know, during, uh, to different brain regions when you're simply just kind of there without being on task. That's where a lot of our anxiety kind of comes up in what they call the default mode network where just kind of the brain talking to itself. The circuits are kind of that are going on in the background. When you harness your attention as powerfully as when you are rock climbing. And back years ago I used to do trail running and it was the same thing for me. I had to watch where every footfall went. Because right. there were rocks. totally focused. And I yeah. my my chatter mind, it's it's actually like medi- meditative. Meditative is just basically at kind of bringing your awareness to something, and kind of creating more of a one focus. And when you're mm. doing something like rock climbing or trail running, you are by n- need, by by necessity, focusing very intent intently on your your mind and and your body at the same time, which will quiet those sort of networks that chitter chatter. You know, when you're kind of when your mind wanders, people are not happy when their minds wander. That's one thing that we do know right. we, when we're focused on task, when we can be engaged in something like what you're doing makes us happy. When some, there are three things that they found from research that go into happiness. And this is Marty Martin Seligman's work. He's the founder of um, Positive Psychology One is that you feel that what you're doing is meaningful. Okay. Mm -hmm. Another thing Mm -hmm. is that it gives you that sense of engagement. So when you're in it, you are in it. That's the flow. And the other piece of it is you might enjoy it. The positive affect is maybe not as important at the end of the day than the feeling of something being compelling engaging, and meaningful. So something Mm -hmm. that's engaging, like rock climbing or trail running, you know, kind of just puts us in that state of flow, and actually can be very good for our creativity. Because some, what happens is if we're too much struggling all the time with our, the top of the mind, what we're doing is we're interfering, we need to go off task sometimes enough to let the processing that goes on automatically under the hood happen as we focus on something else. Right. I like how you say under 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 the the hood. That's great. (laughs) The vast majority of everything in the mind is under the hood. The only thing that's above the hood basically is our working memory, which is our window on the world. Like what I'm thinking about, what I'm talking to you about right now, that's, you know, 10, 15 seconds of you know, uh, working memory, and then I have to think about what I need to retrieve from past memory, and then to Mm -hmm. direct it where I want to go with it. That's basically what's above the hood.
0: So I want to bring it back to the orgasm, and specifically the female orgasm. And this is probably a stupid question, but are the the male and female orgasms, do they work the same? Are our brains? Similar and how it functions. Great question. Well, we just
2: published a paper, just came out this week <laughs> awesome. on male, the male mapping in the myth ma- of the of the genitals to the sensory cortex, plus when men are uh, having orgasms. So it's sort of like a combination of what we did with two papers And for women, we've done in one paper for men. So On the surface, meaning on the surface, what it looks like now is that there are some more similarities than differences. But until we do a direct comparison of the data statistically, which is a whole other bag, we -hmm. won't know for sure. But we can say that in terms of activity, what areas are active, it looks pretty much similar. Even we've even... um, Shown that I, I, we showed that when you stimulate females' nipples, it projects onto the same place in our sensation areas in the brain that the genitals do. We showed that from in men. Now it doesn't mean that men are going to find their nipple stimulation as erotic as women do because there's other factors. Like you know, women when they have nipple stimulation, it it, it stimulates the hypothalamus to release. Uh, oxytocin and prolactin, things that are involved in breastfeeding that cause uterine contractions, that doesn't happen in men. But the point being is that there are similarities and there are going to be differences. One major functional difference between male and female orgasm is that men have the refractory period. So after orgasm, there's a period of time that can vary depending on somebody's age and other factors, how long it takes before they're ready to go again. And it may also Mm. be a large a large part of it is having a new new
0: stimulus. So, Mm. and women can have multiple orgasms. Yeah, we have.
2: We are, in fact, it's actually quite a few. When they looked at, I think the number was like forty-seven or fifty percent of women report having capacity for multiple orgasms in a nationally a really good sample, a nationally representative sample of women, and and that study I think came out in 2015. So even though there's this big orgasm gap where women tend to have fewer orgasms when they're in partnered, when they're with other people, we also have a tremendous capacity, sexual capacity when it's working for it to work really well.
0: Hmm. And I wonder if like the, you know, women who are not able to have orgasms, is that? Do you think that's related to shame, not being connected to your body, feeling like it's not acceptable? I mean, what what is the cause? Like, why do women find that and men don't? I mean, they're just so different. Yeah, well, that that's that a
2: really good point. It's so funny that I'm literally writing a column for Glamour on that for next week. Why can't I okay, totally orgasm? <laughs> so i have just you know been digging in. Well, you know, as I say, sex like. Pretty much everything else that's important is a biopsychosocial event. It, it involves biology, you know, kind of what's going on with the body. The psychology refers to not only, you know, how we think, our experiences and our learning is part of the psychology. And then the relational, the social stuff is relational as well as cultural So I think the main reason why women may have more challenges and and as I'm writing about this now in general with finding their orgasms are the the reasons are include that females are not, it's not considered as okay for women to masturbate, even though women do. We kind of expect that guys will masturbate, boys will be boys, and girls, you know, there's a lot of um, sort of a double standard about that. Females that are too sexual are shamed. Uh, I Mm. talk about in my book, the story of a woman who at the top of her mind was very sex positive on her second marriage and never had an orgasm. And mm. she was one of the most sophisticated intellectually po- sex positive human beings who after and and, and actually treating primary anorgasmia, where where women's never had an orgasm is pretty straightforward, usually, because it's usually because mm. they don't learn how to masturbate. They don't lay down what I call the orgasm, orgasm pathways, the the sensations from the genitals have not been reinforced to the genital regions, the sensory fields in the brain because they haven't been stimulated sufficiently to kind of ring that orgasm bell. Now, also part of it, it's kind of hard for guys to ignore their penises.
0: Sure, right. They're (laughs)
2: outies, they're not innies. We have just as much erectile tissue and nerves as, as guys. It's just a little bit more, a lot more hidden in us. So it's not like if we have... A, a young guy, a male having an erection, it's kind of hard to ignore. Females mm-hmm. also seem to not respond in the same way to blood flow to the genitals as males, like it doesn't usually map on to a female uh, subjective Arousal, like if their genitals do ha- have blood flow, it doesn't always mean that women are going to register it as arousal. Where for men, sure, that's more common, and that's why Viagra works for men and not for women. So it's mm-hmm. you know, like I like to say, it's complicated. I think female sexuality, for biological, psychological, and social reg- you know,
0: social factors, are more complicated. Is is that why you chose to specifically concentrate on the female orgasm? Well, there was less
2: known about female sexual sexuality in general, and I think although men do have sexual issues, the the whole idea of studying female sexuality because it you know it's like a drug company tried to come up with pills for it or you know injections for it like for men it's just there's so much even more unknown territory there for example the g-spot is still a highly debated thing in in the sexuality field does it exist you know something as simple as like how are genitals uh female genitals you know wire onto the brain wasn't comp- wasn't systematically studied until 2011. When we did it, when I was in graduate school, that was my first project. So when it wow. comes to sex in general and female sexuality in particular, we're still in the dark ages.
0: Hmm. hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. So here, I've, I've <laughs> I find it fascinating that you still offer couple couples counseling and therapeutic services and coaching, and you also just wrote a book you conduct research, you write myriad articles and blogs. And I'm just curious, how do you balance it all in your life? Day by day, you know. <laughs> step by step. Day by yeah. day, step by
2: step. I think at this point I've done, I've spent so much time and energy teaching what I need to know. Like, And actually mm-hmm. working with clients helps me find balance because when I'm helping them evaluate Working with their systems when I'm doing hypnotherapy with them, and all of the work that I do with them, I'm listening to as well. So I'm benefiting Mm. from preaching what I need to practice, and that helps me practice it more. Sure. Plus, I think just by nature, I have a tremendous amount of curiosity. So my seeking system, even though I have, you know, a fair amount of, you know, fear and anxiety just in, you know, it happens that that will flare up with me. I'm far more curious than afraid. So I just love learning. And I think when I have something to chew on like that, it keeps me from kind of giving myself a hard time.
0: Oh, that's really neat. You know, Doctor Nan, I gotta say you're incredibly generous with your time, and you know you really want to help people. And, and I meant I forgot to even mention in there you're also a, a professor, <laughs> so there's that side yeah. of it. But on your website, you have a form where people can ask you any questions, yes. and you personally answer all of those yes. questions, and that's pretty awesome. Um, I, I just want to say thank you from from everyone. That's a really cool thing that you offer. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and just learning more about the brain and why good sex matters. Um, I want to tell our listeners that you can find why good sex matters everywhere books are sold. And you can visit Dr. Nan on our website at askdrnan.com. That's ask-d-o-c-t-o-r-n-a-n- dot com. And as I said, you can ask questions of her, you can read her an excerpt from her book and get in touch. So Dr. Nan, thank you so much. This is one awesome. last thing,
2: Jennifer, is that people can okay. book a free 15 minute phone call with me through the website okay. so that wow. I'm happy to help people figure out, you know, kind of where to go, whether they're going to want to work with me or give them some, you know, sort of a a bit of a consult and it's my pleasure it's my joy it keeps i keep myself happy by connecting and feeling like it's meaningful to be in service
0: oh well that's wonderful thank you so much well thank you it's been such a such a pleasure chatting with my you. pleasure thank you so much chad too have a
2: wonderful wonderful day
1: <laughs> you thank too. you okay. you too Are you an author with a story to tell, but you're just not sure how to get that story out?
0: Guess what? You don't have to do it alone. Marnie Friedman is an incredible writing coach. She offers personalized support and expertise to guide you from a kernel of an idea to completion. Visit MarnieFriedman.com to learn more. That's M-A-R-N-I-F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Monkey C Media, a small boutique design firm offering award-winning websites, book cover designs, book trailers, and photography services.
0: And full disclosure, we love what we do. Chad and I founded Monkey C Media in 2004, and we're still going strong.
1: Visit monkeycmedia.com. That's m o n k e y the letter c media.com to see how we can help you promote your book build a powerful online presence
0: Mm -hmm. what else you got chad
1: uh let's see we've got the san diego writer festival san diego writers festival there are many writers (laughs) and they're a proud sponsor of our premise podcast as well
0: Mm -hmm. and it's gonna be awesome this year's keynote is scott gimple he's the head writer of the walking dead and the festival is free it's open to the public there's going to be educational panels and workshops famous authors up-and-coming authors, kids and teen programming, and live theater performances. Oh, and there's music.
1: Oh, and there's food. Oh, but wait, there's more. You also get a copy of our home game. Oh, you're silly.
0: But wait, there is more. There will be literary agents taking pitches from authors looking to get their books published. The festival is about building community and celebrating storytelling of all kinds. It's happening April 4th, 2020 at the Coronado Public Library. <laughs>